You're listening to another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A deep dive into a classic show whose influence is immeasurable. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all my episodes, visit AnthologyPod.com. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod and follow me on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. And if you'd like to support what I do here, you can become a patron at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer, where at the $1 or $2 per month level, you get access to a backlog of tons of exclusive pre-show episodes recorded exclusively for Patreon spread across all three of my podcasts. At the $5 per month level, you get that plus exclusive commentary tracks and movie reaction videos and finally at ten dollars per month you get all of that plus early access to episodes and unreleased content from all of my shows again that's at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer so today on the show i'll be discussing the shelter it's the third episode of the twilight the, uh, <laughs> it's the third episode of the twilight zone's third season and it aired on september 29th 1961 and i will be rounding out the episode with a brief review of science fiction theater season one episode 13 100 years young but before i get into all of that i just want to say um this is the first episode with the new intro and i hope you guys enjoy that i want to thank tony troxel uh, my friend tony troxel from indiana geeking and uh, geeking in indiana family and everything uh, for providing the opening uh, narration for previous episodes of this podcast. Um, I am recording this March 13th, so it'll be it's it's been a while since I recorded this when you got you guys are listening to this on the main feed. But I am using new equipment and I'm very excited about it. And I'm I'm uh, hoping that the sound quality is noticeably improved and noticeably better. I don't know, but hope you guys enjoy it. And um, yeah. <clears throat> So, um, let's get into the shelter. Um, that's a weird sentence. Um, uh, okay, so of course I'm going to start by reading a plot summary, courtesy of The Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. Dr. Stockton resides in a suburb where the neighbors are close enough to be considered a part of his family. They celebrate birthday parties together, cookouts, and celebrate the achievements of their children. Early one summer evening, when a Conrad alert from a radio station instructs listeners to take cover, Stockton ushers his family into a bomb shelter he had specifically constructed. Since the good doctor is the only person on the block with a bomb shelter, the neighbors start migrating to his house. When the doctor tries to explain through the door that there is only enough food, water, and room for his wife and his son, the neighbors form a mob. Like a pack of ravaging wolves, the men attempt to break down the door to the shelter. By the time they succeed in barging through, the radio announcer cancels the alert. The missiles were identified as harmless satellites. Even with the standard apologies from the neighbors, Dr. Stockton wonders just what kind of damage has been done. The Shelter stars Larry Gates as Dr. Bill Stockton. Uh, this was his only episode of The Twilight Zone. He previously worked with Serling in 1955's Incident in an Alley from the United States Steel Hour show. And in 1958's Playhouse 90 episode, Bomber's Moon, which I actually reviewed in episode 34 of this podcast. And his other credits include 1956's Invasion of the Body Snatchers and one episode of One Step Beyond. And playing Marty Weiss is Joseph Bernard. This was also his, his only Twilight Zone episode, and he did appear in one episode of Star Trek. Um, let's see. And uh, Jack Albertson plays Jerry Harlow. Uh, this is his first of two Twilight Zone episodes. Next we'll see of him is the genie in season four. He also appeared in one episode of Night Gallery in the segment called Dead Weight. And finally, he also starred in a 1976 Serling scripted TV movie called The Sad and Lonely Sundays. And uh, the rest of the cast, let's see, we've got Peggy Stewart as Grace Stockton. This was her only Twilight Zone episode. And it was interesting because I had no idea... Um, <laughs> who she was. Um, looking at her credit, she appeared in one episode of Flash Forward to kind of get the kind of science fiction angle out of the way for that, which that show, God, that, uh, I, there was so much potential for that show to be great. But anyway, um, but she was also in two episodes of The Office. Uh, she played gra uh, Pam's grandmother, Meemaw, um, <laughs> from the wedding episode and the christening episode. So I was kind of surprised by that. And also she was in one episode of Community, which is a show that I really like. 
And as Frank Henderson is Sandy Kenyon. Uh, This is his second of three Twilight Zone episodes. Previously, we saw him in the Odyssey of Flight 33. And next we'll see from him is Season 4's Valley of the Shadow. He was also in Serling's Playhouse 90 Ep, A Town Has Turned to Dust, which I reviewed in episode 45 of the podcast. And in terms of other sci-fi anthology shows, he appeared in one episode of One Step Beyond and one episode of The Outer Limits. And writer for this episode was Rod Serling, and director was Lamont Johnson, making his first of eight Twilight Zone director uh, directorial efforts. Um, the next we'll see from him is this season's Five Characters in Search of an Exit. And just looking at the list of other mov- uh, other episodes that he's directed, he directed Kick the Can and the Passage on the Lady Anne uh, from season four. So, so that's neat. Um, yeah, so that's the uh, that's the uh, talent rundown, and I'm going to go ahead and go into my feelings as a viewer of The Shelter. So before I get into the actual review, by the way, I'm going to be spoiling the entire episode, uh, which I already did in the um, plot summary, so um, sorry if you weren't prepared for that. But um, what I knew before going into this episode of The Twilight Zone was that The Simpsons uh, episode, Bart's Comet, from I think season three, uh, does kind of a riff on this as a as a as a uh, concept, and all I knew about it going in was that it's about a group of people arguing over who lives and who dies in an impending apocalypse, and who gets to stay in the shelter and who's doomed. And I was really very much looking forward to this episode, especially after being so enamored with the monsters are due on Maple Street, which this seems like a similar type of episode, and also um, will the real Martian please stand up? Kind of a similar type of thing, sort of. So I was prepared to really like this episode, so let me go into my review of The Shelter. So right from the outset, this episode begins with just a suburban residential street at night, and there is... Okay, so in my in my notes I have upbeat music, and it wasn't until... Honestly, I'll be honest, it wasn't until my second or third viewing of the episode, it was my second viewing, I'll be real, um, my second viewing of the episode that I realized that that music that was playing was uh, Happy Birthday, the Happy Birthday song. <laughs> so um, yeah, a little bit embarrassing on my part, but yeah, it starts with this kind of um, Happy Birthday thing. And um, yeah, so then we get into the actual um, house that they're in, and we see that it is Dr. Stockton's birthday party. And it's very much established in this opening scene that he's just a very well-liked person in this community. And I really like the contrast between this opening scene and what's to come. Throughout the entire episode, there is just a a shift from just pleasant, neighborly community kind of thing and um, admiration and respect and everything to just the complete opposite of that and just complete just bonkers, insane, crazy. And what I really love about this episode, I don't want to get too much ahead or anything, but at the end, uh, Bill, Dr. Stockton, he has that, like the entire episode is built around his changed perspective on what his neighbors are like and who his neighbors really are and who they really are as a community. And I just, I really, really respect that, that characterization and that growth from, from the beginning to the end and where uh, Dr. Stockton kind of uh, ends up at the end. It's just, it's a really well done um, and uh, really well done um, arc. So at the actual dinner party and everything, we get our first shot of Jerry, um, one of the main characters of the community and of the, of the neighbors and everything. He's making an after dinner speech. He's kind of quieting the room and everything and making a speech about the doctor. And it's just establishing that how much the community respects him and everything. And I thought it was interesting because as, as he's talking and as he's, as he's just saying all these respectful things, that's when um, uh, Frank pops up uh, and says uh, that he that the community owes him um, for all of the kind of sarcastic. I think he sarcastically says he, they owe him for um, for all the construction that the doctor had brought into the neighborhood and how all the nighttime stuff, the sounds and everything, it was just really way too. Um, a nuisance basically. And I thought it was interesting that Frank is the one that brings it up because he is, he becomes the most aggressive of the mob. And I just, I, I kind of really like that as a bit of kind of foreshadowing, I guess, in the script. And so the end of the, 
speech that Jerry gives says that Doc, you're a very beloved person and well des- and it's well deserved. And he also um, he says something to the effect of. Uh, there's not a Sawbones in the in the 50 United States to even compares to you or something like that. And I just want to say I love I love the word Sawbones as a reference to a doctor. Um, I don't know what it is about about the word. I just I don't know. I find it just really charming and and cool. And then the doctor gets up and Bill does his kind of faux disgust uh, when, when talking, (laughs) uh, it shows a level of comfort. He says something, he, he says like, oh, you, uh, you, you guys forced me into this dinner party, which I abhor. And, and now that suit, that sappy sentimental speech, um, this is a really charming moment. And it's a good introduction to, uh, Bill as a character because it shows that level of comfort among the group of friends and and among this community and everything that's going to be shattered here in just a few seconds, really. But it's just it was really charming. I really I really like this as an introductory scene for the episode to come. And then that's when the kid enters and says that the TV went out and a message popped up. And I also found this really interesting. There are so many similarities between this episode and the monsters are due on Maple Street, even down to the fact that the kid enters the room and and alerts the um, adults to the the warning sign and everything and so that's kind of similar to the to maple street in that the kid um kind of clues the adults into the idea of an alien invasion and everything so i just found it really interesting that these two episodes are the paranoia and and fear and panic is facilitated by children that bring up uh, bring it to the adults attention and I just want to say for the record I do like the kid here better um, I think he's a better actor um, so yeah so they go into the room and the announcer says that four minutes ago the president announced um, unidentified flying objects entering our airspace and the announcement refers to the bombers as unidentified flying objects which I found interesting I mean obviously that's just a a regular term and everything because they are unidentified flying objects. But I really found it that kind of triggered in me this idea that I found it interesting that this episode feels like a grounded and more realistic version of the monsters are due on Maple Street. Um, in that they're driven crazy by the threat of nuclear bombs coming, whereas in Maple Street, an alien invasion. Uh, was what spurred the paranoia and drove the drama of Maple Street. And both of the episodes kind of reached the same end to an extent, with Maple Street being much more violent and crazy, um, while the shelter has more social ramifications. But it's just, it is that building tension from one point to the next of just escalating terror and fear and unthinkable actions among these regular people that is really captivating. And it's really interesting that these two episodes are kind of parallel to each other in that respect, but they handle them in completely different uh, tones to an extent. Like Maple Street is science fiction and and fantastic, and uh, uh, The Shelter is realistic and grounded in reality. Um, <clears throat> I may be getting a little bit ahead of myself, but that makes uh, The Shelter much scarier to me, <laughs> um, which I'll talk about, uh, excuse me, I'll talk about later in the episode. So after the announcement on the on the TV, the mood completely shifts and everyone leaves. And there's suspenseful music as they're leaving the house. We hear uh, planes flying overhead, and it sounds like I, I think the implication is that they're that like a nearby airbase or something is scrambling jets to go in and you know, um, investigate. Um, and just that added sound effect, and it plays a little bit later too. Um, that added sound effect of the the scrambling jets and everything is just adds to the terror as this is like one piece of uh, like that that announcement on the TV was the introdu- introduction of the scenario that they're going to see themselves in. And then to have the the sound effect of the planes flying overhead, that just that ratchets up the tension just a little bit more. And then even in the camera technique of this shot before we get to Sterling's opening narration, it's just really cool how even the camera kind of feels like um, somewhat subtly frantic in the way that it moves. Like it is almost like a handheld shot to an extent. So um, there are three couples that leave the house. And the first one... 
is Marty and his wife. They run from the door across the lawn into in the grass directly toward the camera. And then once they get out of frame, the camera shoot like zooms over to the door again. And we see Jerry and his wife run from the door to the sidewalk as the camera is following them to the sidewalk. And then they stop to hear the jets and they look up and then they run out of frame. And then as soon as they run out of frame, the camera whips back over to the to the door and we see Frank and his wife running from the door to the sidewalk the same way that Jerry and his wife were uh, uh, were situated. And then instead of running toward us, they run away from the camera straight down the sidewalk, away from the camera. And then that's when the camera swo- uh, swoops in kind of a harsh manner over to Serling, who's standing off to the side, and he's about to deliver the opening narration. And I just... That frenetic and frantic energy of the camera and the, just that one little snippet, I think really, really helps create in in uh, the audience's mind this tense, this intensity that's to come. And it's just, it's really, a really effective camera technique. I was really kind of taken with it. So then we get Serling's opening narration, which I will play right here. What you're about to watch is a nightmare. It is not meant to be prophetic. It need not happen. It's the fervent and urgent prayer of all men of goodwill that it never shall happen. But in this place, in this moment, it does happen. This is the Twilight Zone. And I like how he says that it need not be prophetic. It need not happen. And it's the, like he says, it's the fervent and urgent prayer of all men of goodwill that it will, that it never shall happen. And that kind of feels like it's, It's a bit of hopeful optimism slash kind of a a note of caution by Serling. Um, It's it's really effective. It's a really good um, introduction to this episode, especially since this episode is so grounded in reality and and the ominous nature of, you know, the threat of nuclear war breaking out um, in our backyard. Like, I can't I can't imagine (laughs) that I'll get to that later in this review, but just the timing of this episode and in the area of the like the the um the genre of the episode i guess is just is really uh really at play here in a really good way so after the opening narration we get more sounds of the jets uh overhead and again that just doubles down that intensity that ominous nature that kind of scariness and everything and so we get back into the doc's house and bill and grace are stockpiling their water they're scrambling to get everything together and they're stockpiling as much water as the uh, as they can while they can because the tap is getting very much uh it's running low like the like they're not uh getting a lot of water anymore <laughs> um so i thought this was kind of funny it's a sign of the time and everything because this is what 1961 um but when uh grace drops the uh bottle <laughs> i thought it was kind of funny and of the of the time that bill is like just imagine that it's a hundred dollar bottle of perfume um like I don't I don't know it's just as someone in 2021 watching this episode I thought that was kind of funny but also just in an, in another sense like like not I'm not dragging it for that but that also carries with it this underlying terror like they're gathering as much water as they can and like the severity of a broken bottle of water could mean the difference between living for like an extended period of time or dying 2 days earlier than they would either cuz they don't have water Um, like running out of the water. I just, my mind kind of ran with this, like going into a shelter. Like it's something that is just, uh, mind boggling to me. Like, like the, the threat, the, the nervousness, the scariness of it is just, is it's intense to me. So as they're still scrambling to get everything together and Bill has Paul go get a toolkit and everything, um, there's just this anxious and frantic energy here. And I, I really, really like it. It's again, it's just, it's really what we need, um, to really sell the craziness that's about to unfold among the the neighbors and everything. And so in a moment, Bill tries to comfort his wife, Grace, and he kind of holds her and she asks how much time they have. And he says, Connell Rad says they might have 15 to 30 minutes, but he really doesn't know. He's just flying by the seat of his pants. And that is horrifying to me like just the thought that you are alerted to a potential nuclear strike in your neighborhood or near you uh because grace goes on to say that uh, new york is 40 miles away but 
to be in that situation and have like a family that you have to protect and everything, just like, I can't imagine what that would be like. Um, just the, the fear and anxiety of that. It's just, it's, it's crazy to me. So they run out of water, but it's fine because they're, they're getting everything together. They, it's not going to make much of a difference. They're going to go down to the shelter. And so they get into the shelter. It's a very small, like walk-in closet kind of thing. And it's just, it's very claustrophobic in and of itself, which adds to the, um, insanity of the neighbors that are going to come into play later in the episode. So, um, he tells Polly, Paul to get a toolkit from the garage, which I thought was, would come into play later, but it's more just the script, just getting Paul out of the room so that, uh, Bill and Grace can have another moment together and to talk about a more heavy kind of thing. But, um... But yeah, so so with them kind of alone, Bill comforts Grace again, or Grace kind of says her doubts. She is applying, she starts applying logic to the completely illogical situation they find themselves in. She says that what's the point of going on? Like, what is the point of even surviving this? If New York is 40 miles away, then that means we're going to be hit pretty, pretty soon because you know they're going to take down New York. Um, and so she just doesn't see the point in fighting to survive if everything else will be destroyed. And like that, this is where I am in my head here. (laughs) I'm fascinated by these cold war fears of nuclear war and everything. So it just seems from all the media that, because obviously I wasn't alive then, I'm only 30, I'm going to be 35 in June, but I, I can't imagine what it would have been like to live in that time and have that thought in your head that, oh, you know, um, the Russians or whomever can just send nukes over and bomb the U.S. and everything would be a, a nuclear winter and everything. Um, it just sounds like, from all the media that I've seen about it, it just seems like a dark, dark, truly horrifying time. And to see those fears play out in this episode in such a grounded and realistic and horrifying way um, just really worked for me in in a very profound and deep level. So Bill tries to comfort her and he says that they have food and water to last two weeks, which that kind of makes me laugh in kind of a morbid sense on that same in the kind of uh, on that same level, because if they can subsist on two weeks for two weeks with that, with those supplies, like I just imagine like the worst case scenario, like, okay, if a nuke falls and there's fallout and everything, and it's a complete decimation of everything around them, like that means that they'll have no way of replenishing like their supplies or anything, or even coming out after two weeks. It's just, I immediately went to the most, um, like the uh, most worst case scenario kind of thing. And that kind of makes Grace's concerns about, you know, maybe we shouldn't survive. Maybe we should just like accept like a quick and relatively painless death. Um, That makes her those concerns and those thoughts a little more valid to an extent. Um, However, when I was thinking about that, and this might be a small tangent, I kind of wondered if that would be more of a, I think that maybe the two weeks is contingent on the government actually still existing and being able to help if there is a nuclear strike. So I don't know, but I just thought that 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 time frame of two weeks seemed a little, a little short. Um, But yeah. So Grace is saying that she's wondering why it's necessary to survive and what's the good of it. And I love that as a bit of existential dread and terror. I just, I love that. And I thought it was, I thought it was pretty sweet that uh, Bill's response to that and his kind of rationalization and his, his response to her was that uh, Polly is their future. Like the kid is the future. He may only, he says he may only inherit rubble now, but he's only 12 years old. And he kind of repeats that. I think he says he's only 12 years old. He's only 12 years old. And what I took from that, and maybe this is too dark. Maybe this isn't, maybe this isn't what Serling intended in this episode, but I took that to mean two things. One is that Paul Polly's generation will be the one that rebuilds society and and brings it back and everything. And that's why he can't die because he's only 12, 12 and he has a whole future where his generation can rebuild society and everything. Or the other side of that, which I think is the more darker cynical thing, 
is I was wondering if uh, Bill was saying he's only 12 years old in the sense that we can't let our 12-year-old son die without fighting to keep him alive because he's only 12 years old. Like, just the because, I mean, obviously letting a 12-year-old die is too abhorrent a thought for Bill to consider that. And I kind of wondered that. I don't know if that's necessarily what's intended in it, but I thought that that, to, that made, that put a very... A dark tint on an already kind of dark episode. So I, and I enjoy it. Like, I think I, I really enjoy that kind of that level of existential and, and uh, problem solving to an extent. And so the next scene is Jerry knocking on the door and Bill is still frantic. He's cause he's going up to get the water, I think. And he's still frantic and he's telling, telling Jerry to go home and he tells him to get home to his shelter or basement and I don't know. I thought that that was just a little clunky. Um, like it just felt like I had something about it just didn't fit for me or it didn't didn't really work for me that well. But it also shows how frantic Bill's mind is in this moment. So I can't fault it too much. Like he's 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 amped up. He is he's working to to get everything in line because this is the thing that he built the shelter for. Um, and so his mind isn't thinking that clearly. So I I can understand that. I'm not sliding the episode for that. And so Jerry then crosses that social line um, of asking, well, can my family come into the shelter too? And at first, he's pretty reasonable in his request. He's just kind of like, it's friendly and it's kind of like asking if he can borrow a cup of sugar or something. Um, but when he's shot down, he he becomes more fearful and then he becomes more panicked and he starts bargaining in, uh, with him and everything as they're going down the stairs. And he's saying that, um, we'll bring our own food and water and everything. We won't take up too much space. Um, we're doing all like, like, please, you've got to let us in and everything. You've got to let us stay with you. And Jerry's despair in this moment is so great and so visceral that it is such an interesting episode in that I don't, I, I, at this moment, I'll say, I'll preface this by saying at this moment, I don't fault Jerry for wanting to intrude on the sanctuary that Bill has set up for his family. Like I can't fault him for asking and for pressing him on that because it is in his mind, a life and death situation. But then Bill just obviously shoots him down. He says, I'm sorry, Jerry, but I built that for my family. Um, it's, it's for my family. And then Jerry says, this is where he crosses another line. This is where it's, it crosses a significant line because Jerry responds to that by saying, what about mine? What about my family? And that feeling of protecting yourself and your family as it's superseding your sense of reason and logic is something that is really fascinating to me in this episode. It is, and it is written so well and so effectively that I just, I was really taken with this and it just breeds this selfish self-preservation that Jerry has and the other neighbors have too. And it just makes the tension of the episode so intense and so, like I said, visceral. And so Jerry then kind of presses him and, and kind of, struggles with him there's a little bit of like a struggle it's not like a violent thing but he kind of tries to grab a bottle of water or something like that and so it drops and shatters and immediately jerry apologizes which is something that doesn't happen again um until the end of the episode but i thought that that was interesting that like there's still some very small semblance of like neighborly uh can uh, um i don't know neighborly consideration there um, and friendliness. So it's not, it hasn't become something, uh, irreversible yet. And so this is where Bill, he doesn't start, it's not necessarily gloating that he does, but he talks about how, like, I warned you guys, this is what was going to happen. I, none of you wanted to listen. None of you wanted to like realize the world that we live in. And so I did this for my family and you guys have made your bed essentially. So he isn't gloating or anything, but he knows that he's that he was right. And this is confirmation that he was right. And it's I, I kind of I get that. I, I get that. <laughs> I totally, totally get that. And so after that, we get back upstairs and Marty and his family arrive just as no, no, no. It's it's on the stairwell toward the shelter. I'm sorry. So Marty and his family arrive just as Bill shuts the door. And this is where the crumbling of their community really starts to kick in and really kick into gear. It's a selfishness. Again, it's a selfishness that's bred from self-preservation instincts that they have. 
And it's just, it's one of the highlights of this episode. One of the great things about this episode is that specifically that transition of the episode uh, from from that kind of reasonable request by Jerry to the neighbors wanting in, um, or I should say the transition of the episode from neighbors wanting into the shelter to neighbors taking um, a sense of ownership over the shelter. I just thought that that was just amazing, which I'll get to. So, um, so then Marty goes up to the door and he is uh, begging I think it's Marty, or I feel like it should have been Frank, but um, but it's Marty. I think he is. He goes up to the door and he is asking. He's begging through the door, and he starts kind of guilting Bill. He says, "I feel sorry for you, and you'll have blood on your hands." And then he finally yells, "Like you're a doctor, you're supposed to help people." And all that time he's pounding on the door, which is kind of implying this sense of violence, this violent nature that's growing within him and the community as a whole. And so we get kind of closing in on our first act break is uh, kind of a close up in the shelter of Bill with this far off gaze. And he says that was a million years ago that he was a doctor and he's supposed to help people and everything. Um, And it's just saying he says it to his family, sort of like or no one in particular, essentially. And it's just, it's such a powerful sentiment. Like he knows now that everything has changed and everything, nothing will go back to normal after this night, no matter what happens. And he kind of comments on that by saying that was a million years ago. Um, And it really made me wonder the first time I saw this that I was wondering, is Bill a bad person? Is he a bad guy (laughs) or is it a moral reaction? Um which now that I've seen it several times, it's he's not a bad guy. He is a reasonable man who can't afford to risk the life of his family. It is a clear-cut thing. The neighbors who are insisting on being involved in the shelter and being inside the shelter are the unreasonable ones that are um, potentially endangering Bill and his family. Um, and so he yells for marty to get out of there and then i think that's where we get our act break and when we come back there is uh more people arrive uh frank arrives at the uh at the house and jerry is kind of explaining to his wife at the doorway um he says uh, he says yeah bill just closed the door in my face and it's just it has this kind of tint or this hint of um of of hurt i guess um just saying like, like, it's almost like, oh, he's ignoring me and everything. It's like, no, this is a life or death situation. Like, this is a serious situation. So as Frank arrives, Jerry kind of suggests that they pull their resources and get together and just find a basement and just hunker down in the basement. And like, that's a reasonable alternative, I would think. I mean, it's not going to shield them from a nuclear blast, but I mean, at least they'd be together and everything. But they don't choose that route. Um, I think one of the wives says, it's not fair. He's down in a bomb shelter, perfectly safe, while our kids have to sit around and wait for a bomb. And like, I have I have a cynical kind of uh, aggressive note here. I just, uh, my my note is you should have gotten your own bomb shelter lady. Like, like that's that sense of entitlement and ownership that they have. And that they like, they're starting to rationalize, um, their behavior already. It's just like, I mean, it's, it's so clear cut, like they are in the wrong no matter what. And they don't have ownership of it, uh, of the shelter, even if they're crazed and, and fearful for their lives, that doesn't excuse their behavior. And it kind of already, already got this sensation here that they are already kind of trying to rationalize sacrificing Bill to an extent, like saying like, uh, like that sentiment of he's down in a bomb shelter while our kids are say our our kids are sitting around here like the the implication of that and maybe I'm reaching here is that he doesn't deserve to be in that bomb shelter my children do and my children need to be in there so I'm willing to do anything I can to get them in there um that's the kind of deep seated um um intention or or uh, I don't know, the intent of that of that statement that I read into it. Again, I could be reaching, but I do think that the precedent is there and that it is something that uh, should be considered. And so that's when Frank suggests that they break down the door to the shelter. And they start arguing. Uh, Marty suggests that they uh, draw lots to see who gets in, which 
I, I never heard that expression, draw lots. I just know draw straws. So I thought that was interesting. I don't know. I'm sure it's a common, it was a common expression, but um, I didn't do my due diligence and look it up. So sorry. Um, so Jerry kind of reaffirms and or re, reasserts himself and says that Bill's not going to let anyone in, like no matter what. And here at this moment, I noticed that another kind of correlation with Maple Street is that Jerry is kind of taking on the Claude Atkins role from The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. He's attempting to inject reason into a completely unreasonable and illogical and frankly insane situation. And Marty kind of doubles down and tells Jerry to plead with Bill. And what I found interesting about this is as he's telling Jerry to try to plead with Bill to let them in and everything and to reconsider, there's a shot of, I think it's his kids, Marty's kids, um, picking at the icing on the cake on the table. And I thought that that was interesting. I thought that was really interesting because on the surface, it's kind of a slight comedic moment um, that they like, (laughs) they're just, I mean, showing how little the kids are affected by. Uh, are affected by things that they're just like, oh, oh there's cake. I'm going to, I'm going to take some cake. Um, it's an, it's a nice, like kind of comedic moment, but on a deeper level, I kind of wonder if there's some kind of commentary that can be mined from there that like the pureness of children, like kids are uh, like kind of like they aren't concerning themselves with the deep seated hatred that's going to be rising up among the adults or anything. It's just like, they just see cake and they want cake. They're, it's more, it's probably more that they're just not cognizant of the severity of the situation or anything. But I just thought that it was an interesting moment that we see these adults um, that are rationalizing and following, falling into these just really um, irresponsible, hurtful, harmful, and dangerous actions. And we get a brief uh, break from that to see kids just kind of picking at icing on a cake. I think that there might be something that you can glean from that. I don't know. But anyway, so the families argue about who deserves to be saved among them. And Marty mentions that he has a three-month-old baby. And I think uh, one of the wives, I think Jerry's wife says, well, why does, why does your baby uh, deserve to be saved more than my, my kids do or whatever? So here's where the tension gets even, even more heightened and more severe because Frank uh, he, Frank just lets loose on Marty and he says, um, he's, he's angry and he's, he's, uh, screaming at him. (laughs) And he says, he refers to him as, um, he says that this is what everyone, this is what they do when they come here to America. They're pushy, grabby, semi-Americans. And this blew my mind. Like, I just thought that that was a really, really intense, like, um, escalation of the tension. Like, uh, this, like a character, it, I mean, it's truthful. It's, it, I, I, I'm not true. I'm going to walk that back because that sounds really terrible. It's not truthful. It's honest to that type of situation that a character or a person who has these deep seated bigotry and, um, insecurities and racism in their heart would bring that up in the, in a most intense situation. That's what I meant by, um, by, by it's, it's real um, or it's true. But it's also funny because, okay, this is going to be a slight tangent, but I just want to bring it up because this is insane to me um, and whatever. But I'm recording this March 13th, and just last night I saw on the news there was was an announcer at some, like, high school basketball game, I think, who as the – um, as the national anthem was playing, he was talking to the person in the, in the announcer box or whatever. And he was, he pointed out someone kneeling during the national anthem and he's talking about it to his friend. And he, uh, says some racial slurs. He drops the N word and, uh, all of that, it was on a hot mic. Um, so everyone heard it and everything. And, um, what I find kind of just in unbelievably hilarious about the fallout of that is that this this idiot um, released a statement that said that he uh, part of it was he he suffers from type one diabetes and his blood sugar was spiking then. So uh, this is why I bring this up because this episode is an amazing cautionary tale because by the end of it, which I'll get to obviously, but by the end of it, 
there's a there's a return to normalcy. There is a, an attempt by the characters to return to normal. And they can't because they've let their deepest and darkest demons out in this moment. And that is something that I see all the time on things that go viral, um, like social justice stuff or whatever, like this situation that I just described, the guy um, saying racial slurs on a hot mic at someone who um, who was kneeling during the national anthem, which, first of all, just, just as an aside, um, f- f- I... Anyone who's upset about someone kneeling during the national anthem is willfully trying to ignore why they're kneeling for the national anthem. Like this person who who was saying these things and and let loose all of these slurs and everything, like there is a sharp disconnect between like why is someone kneeling during during a national anthem um disrespectful, but this moron, racist, bigoted moron, uh spreading his racism and bigotry and everything um, during the national anthem. How is that not disrespecting the national anthem and disrespecting the flag? Like, I, there is a disconnect there. It is, uh, shocker, spoiler alert, it is disrespectful, and he's a shitty person and should not be, like, should be removed from his job and everything, all that. I haven't followed up. But anyway, um, yeah, so anyway, that's that's a whole thing. But I think that it's an interesting correlation um, or it has interesting correlations for this episode because um, the characters at the end of this episode try to walk back their actions. And for the um, two Bill's credit, they fail at that. <laughs> and so I, I really uh, like that. So here at this next moment, we get a neighbor running up to the door. And for the life of me, I don't know who this person is. <laughs> um, like, he just kind of comes up and I don't remember him from the, from the dinner party scene. And I don't, I don't know if I really caught the name or anything. It's just kind of confusing that this guy comes up and we don't really know who he is. But anyway, so they're talking, they're kind of bringing him up to speed. Like, Oh, Bill has a shelter. He's not letting anyone in. And then Frank is, he's getting more and more heated and he takes a lantern from the guy and he goes back down to the shelter. And that's when Frank threatens Bill through the door. And Jerry kind of sidles up beside him and and he says to Bill like um you know they they really mean business out here and everything trying to kind of convince him in a sense to to let them in and everything and then that's when the new guy suggests that they get a battering ram which is again another escalation of the violence and and of the of the situation that they find themselves in. It's another, it's another escalation. And that's when Frank starts making a plan and says that like one of their neighbors has a, has lead piping that they can get. And then that's when the, the new guy, the guy I don't know the character's name for, um, he nixes that idea. And, uh, because he says he doesn't want anyone else to know they have a shelter. And that is such a pivotal moment and such a fascinating moment to me because they are operating under the assumption that that shelter belongs to them. And I found that really, really fascinating as a character study and everything. And I have more correlations that I'm going to probably bring up later, but I'm going to separate that into a different uh, different section of the episode, which you'll see why. But... Um, yeah, I just found that really fascinating. And so Jerry kind of calls him out on that, kind of taking up once again that uh, Claude Aiken's um, role from Maple Street. And he says, oh, this is our shelter? Um, and then he goes in and he goes on to say like that they're crazy and that they're being a mob and everything. Um, and they need to kind of rethink what they're doing before it's too late, essentially. And so Marty kind of backs Jerry at this moment and he he agrees with him and he says like well, I, I think we're going too far or whatever and that's when Frank again he's the most aggressive of the group and he is just he takes it he 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 just he builds it up and and takes it too far um or he has taken it too far and he pushes it forward even more so he yells or he says like nobody cares what you think you or your kind i think i made that clear upstairs and that's when he punches him and like man that's just it is just chaotic and scary and and sad really um and then also Again, escalating tension. This is something this episode does spectacularly well because after Frank punches Marty, uh, the siren starts wailing. So it's even more audio cues to um, 
uh, to signal the impending doom that they potentially face. And that's when Frank says, let's get this battering ram and break this door down. Um, and then he yells to Bill uh, through the door. He says, Bill, you had your chance. And man, that it's just so... I love the writing in this episode. <laughs> it's it's fantastic. It's it's absolutely fantastic. And so we get a cut inside the shelter where where Grace asks who those people are. And Bill kind of sighs and says, "Those people are our neighbors, our friends, the people we've lived with and alongside for 20 years." And man, I found that just to be an incredible line, an incredible um, act break for the episode. And just, I, I really, really loved that. And this is where I started to question. This is where I started to wonder, does this episode actually improve upon Maple Street? Um, which I'll make a decision later in this review. But it, uh, this is where I started to get that inkling. Like, this might be better, I think. So then we come back and we see the group of neighbors with a massive battering ram um, running into the house. It's it's almost comical the way that they are just like all together in this. Like it's, it's the, the whole group, like no one is not holding on to that battering ram as they run through the street, run up the sidewalk, one, run into the house. As they're going through the kitchen and the different rooms, they're just recklessly destroying things as they're moving stuff out of the way. And... Um, it's just, it's, it's kind of a, a symbol of, of how little they care for other people. Um, so they wreck the house, getting the battering ram to the door and then they start breaking in, breaking into the door, um, or breaking into the shelter. And first of all, it, it kind of, and this is really not a criticism or anything, just an observation that the door seems kind of super flimsy, um, or the battering ram is just really powerful, but either way they successfully break into the shelter. And so Bill, Grace, and Polly, they are just dumbfounded. And there is an incredible, incredible shot as the group gets into the shelter. The shot is from the perspective of inside the shelter. It's the doorway to the shelter. And the shot is of Frank, Marty, Jerry, and the other guy (laughs) in the doorway with two of the wives in the background. It's perfectly center. It's just, it is an incredible shot, just composition and everything. It's just a really great um, shot in the episode. And then that's when the president's announcement starts. And the timing of that is just perfect. It's 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 great. And so the president's, the, the message that comes over is that the president has issued a message saying that, oh, false alarm, the unidentified flying objects have been, uh, uh, have been recognized as satellites. They are not, um, they're not harmful or anything. So, um, yeah, go, go to sleep guys. (laughs) We're all good. And this is just where it, it, like we get to the closing moments of this episode, everything switches off. Like everything goes, um, the, the tension of the impending nuclear fallout, um, dissipates, but the tension of the violence and the, in the, the, uh, the, the character's interpersonal tension it will probably never go away. So Frank, uh, after a moment, he starts apologizing to Marty. And he says, I'm sorry, I just went off my rocker. I was afraid. And like his whole demeanor and the completely drastic change in tone that he has is just incredible. Like I think that that's a really great performance in that moment because he just completely flips to back to a sense of normal to an extent. And he tries to apologize and everything. And what I really love is Marty doesn't even, I don't know if he doesn't even look at him, but he doesn't respond to him at all. And this, so, so this I think is where the shelter expands upon the things that I loved so much about the monsters are doing on Maple street. So in, in the sense that we see the fallout of everything that's happened, like we see that everything in the shelter is supposed to, in theory, go back to normal, but we know, we see now that they're not going to go back to normal. We see the pain and the destruction that has been dealt through this situation, and we see that nothing will ever be the same for this community, um, at least not immediately, whereas with Maple Street, everything just gets ratcheted up and becomes this violent 
crazed thing, and we don't see the fallout. We don't get a denouement of it. We just get the implication that, okay, this the Maple Street residents are, are destroying each other, essentially, which is not a fault for Maple Street. I adore that episode um, on a very deep level, but I think that having this fallout section of no pun intended, obviously, but this kind of um, ramification scene for the shelter um, kind of elevates that past the Monsters of Duel on Maple Street for me. And so even Jerry kind of joins in on this kind of um, trying to get trying to get things back to normal kind of thing because he says, I don't think Bill will hold all this against us. Um, or he, I think he says to Mar, or Frank that Marty's not going to hold it against you or whatever. And then he says, I don't think Bill will hold all this against us. And I just found it really interesting that it's just a desperate, a de- the desperation in this scene with these characters. Like it's a desperation to reclaim normalcy. And like, it, I just, I love that. I think that that's brilliant. And he goes on to say that they'll take up a collection or something. And then Marty chimes in and says, we'll have a block party. Um... And I just, I found it really palpable and powerful how that panic of fear has shifted into a panic of trying to get back to normal. Like that is where the panic lies now because they they know in their hearts that they have done irreparable damage to their relationships with with one another, but they want to go back to normal. And so that's when Bill responds. And I love love, love this monologue that he gives. He says, I don't know what normal is. I thought I did once, but not anymore. And then he also says, I wonder if any of us have any idea what those damages really are that they've incurred. And um, maybe one of them is finding out what we were really like when we're normal. Like he talks about finding out what they're really like when they're normal, like what, who they are when the chips are down. And I thought that that was just an amazing way to end the episode, a beautiful, um, dark sentiment that like the fallout of what happened, the actual, what has destroyed them isn't bombs, but it's realization of who they really are deep down inside. And it's just, it's, this inhuman ugliness of self-preservation that has caused irreparable damage for their interpersonal relationships and everything and their, their friendship. Um, I just, I loved it. I loved it so much. Um, yeah. And that's the end of the episode. We get the closing narration, which I will play right here. No moral, no message, no prophetic tract, just a simple statement of fact. For civilization to survive, the human race has to remain civilized. Tonight's very small exercise in logic from the Twilight Zone. And I think that's a really beautiful closing narration. It's succinct and it just has that kind of, um, that, that sense of almost, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, not confidence, but, uh, positivity, I guess, um, so I thought that that was, that was a good way to end on it and everything. And uh, yeah, so trivia I have for this episode. Um, really, I just want to mention the Conrad um, station idea, the Conrad thing. Uh, Conrad is control of electromagnetic radiation. Uh, it was a method of emergency broadcasting to the public of the United States in the event of an enemy attack during the Cold War. I had never heard about this. I had never known anything about that. So I thought that was really interesting. And uh, the only other piece of trivia I have is that Sandy Kenyon's character, Frank, mentions uh, how they're going to go over to Bennett Avenue to get a pipe for the battering ram. And the trivia part of that is that uh, Bennett Avenue is where creator Rod Serling grew up as a child in New York. So that's my review of The Shelter. And what I'm going to say now is going to be about... Uh, a current event really so so if you don't really care if you don't want to hear me talk about I don't even want to say politics but talk about the January 6th insurrection essentially um, if you don't want to hear me say that or talk about that just skip ahead to the uh, bonus review but I just want to say that I'm recording this like I said March 13th and on January 6th a group of thousands of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol building in DC and this was after a rally where Trump and a bunch of uh, his lackeys were kind of 
talking about stopping the steal and everything. For context, for those living in the future, um, uh, the 2020 election occurred in November, and then Trump immediately just disregarded or or challenged the results in a very transparent way because he was just not capable of accepting that he lost um, the election and everything. And so he went on to uh, talk about how there was widespread voter fraud and everything, had several, several court cases thrown out immediately because they have no evidence to that effect and everything. And he still did that because his ego and his narcissism does not allow him to accept that he is a loser in this, in this case and in his life. But, um, so the, uh, he had a stop the steal rally and the January 6th insurrection was essentially his, his Trump zombies running into the Capitol building, uh, destroying, uh, some things with the intention of, uh, stopping, uh, the uh, stopping Congress from certifying the electoral college votes that would name Biden the next president. Fucking insane, crazy, unbelievably insane, heartbreaking thing for the country of the United States. So the reason I'm bringing this up here is that it is the episode The Shelter is such a an, an incredible episode at depicting what these what what these characters in this episode do when they are faced with an unimaginable kind of scenario in their in their in their worldview and everything and they're trying to um uh you know they're they're trying to uh, survive and everything and i found a lot of interesting parallels with what happened on january 6th here in the us because the people who went to the capitol and broke into the Capitol and did things like taking a shit on Nancy Pelosi's Pelosi's desk and constructing a gallows outside of the Capitol and chanting to hang Mike Pence. Fucking horrifying. Um, that was spurred by just a complete, uh, completely um, unsubstantiated claim that the election was stolen. And what I found really interesting in the fallout of the insurrection was that afterward... I like people were uh, people who were outspoken against Trump were at least some people were uh, kind of taking a step back. <laughs> and um, I saw a lot of cases where uh, people who were at like there was one CEO of some tech company or something who issued a statement that was like I was at the Capitol um, and it was a, it was a really horrible um uh, lapse of judgment in my, in my head. And I, you know, a lot of people were going in, so I just went in to take a look around and it's like, it's downplaying the actions, the, the reprehensible traitorous and, uh, horrible actions of, of yourself because you can't take responsibility for what you've done. And that's something that the characters in the shelter do in those closing minutes. They, don't want to accept or take responsibility for their actions and the harmful things that they've done. So they want to go back. And I just found interesting parallels there. I won't, I won't go into anything more there, but, uh, but yeah. So anyway, I just thought that that was interesting, um, an interesting correlation and everything. So, um, okay. <laughs> now I'm going to kind of close out this episode with a uh, brief review of science fiction theater season one, episode 13, 100 years young. So 100 Years Young uh, originally aired on July 2nd, 1955, and the plot summary according, uh, according to IMDb, courtesy of IMDb, is though he looks to be in his 40s, the man caught breaking into a research laboratory claims he's over 200 years old. He says he learned the secret formula for youth from the, medi uh, from the medicine man who raised him. The researchers find him to be sad and lonely, afraid to love someone because she will die of old age while he uh, just keeps going. Starring, this, uh, starring in this episode of Science Fiction Theater is Ruth Hussey as Bernice Knight, John Abbott as John Bowers, 
John Archer as uh, Police Lieutenant Mike Redding and Charles Meredith as Mr. Lyman. Uh, the director of this episode was Herbert Strock and writers were Alf, uh, Arthur Fitzrichard uh, with a story credit and Jerry Sackheim with a screenplay credit. And worth noting that John Archer appeared in... Um, the Twilight Zone episode, Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up, as one of the troopers. So, as is customary with science fiction theater, uh, it begins with this pre-show of Truman Bradley introducing the episode with some kind of scientific kind of experiment sort of thing. And in this case, he has this, like, scale model of a steam engine, um, and he kind of cranks up the amount of steam pressure until it explodes. He overloads it and it blows up. And so he kind of compares that to the human body. And he talks about how, unfortunately, um, our our bodies have evolved to the point where, haven't evolved or have has evolved to the point where, um, you know, if we take care of it, it can last for a while, but eventually it's going to wear out. Our bodies wear out and everything. And that's kind of the theme of the episode as he puts it. So, then we get into the episode and it's it's I mean it's it's fine. It's it's a pretty solid episode of science fiction theater. Uh there's this mystery aspect surrounding the character of John Bowers. Um I found it really interesting because he is um it opens with um the doctor or or a scientist and and um Oh God! What's her name? Bernice, the the character Bernice, working in the lab uh, late one night, um, and hearing the commotion of of John Bowers, and John Bowers has broken into the broken into the um, lab uh, on numerous occasions, and they finally catch him. And there's like a little bit of an action scene where the doctor um, grabs uh, uh, gra- uh, grabs a um, Oh God, a gun. Wow. Why, why could I not think of that word? He grabs a gun and then he even fires a shot at John Bowers and it hits his like arm or something. So I don't know. But anyway, so they, it sets up this uh, kind of dynamic that's, that's been present in past episodes of science fiction theater where they have a problem to solve uh, that is an unbelievable mystery. Like this man who claims to be over 200 years old. And they kind of go about that through a logic and grounded science kind of thing. Um, and it eventually boils down to there was like an elixir or something that he has to drink every six months or whatever. But what I found really interesting about that is that the episode pivots and becomes about reconstructing that, um, that serum and that, uh, that formula and everything. And it becomes this kind of morality tale and this story of John Bowers trying to wrestling, uh, kind of wrestling with his doubts about sharing this secret that he has. It's kind of a, it's very similar to long live Walter Jameson in that respect. Um, and, and overall in that respect and everything. And I just, I found it really interesting. There's, there's a little bit of a, uh, a, uh, tension to the backstory of John Bowers. Um, like there's, there's this interesting development, like halfway through the episode where it's like, you learn that there's something in Bowers past, um, that, uh, is, is heinous. And, and, um, it's, it's something significant. And, <laughs> and then the episode just doesn't do anything with it. Like it, it addresses it, but it's like, Oh no, it's okay. Um, it's fine that this thing happened cause it was long ago. Um, so I thought, I thought that was kind of goofy, but by the end of it, John Bowers kind of becomes this tragic character and it's, it's a really interesting, solid enough episode. I'm, I don't know if I'd, I don't know where I'd rank it cause I'm not really keeping close track of how I feel about these episodes of science fiction theater, but I'm, I'm enjoying it. And this was a pretty good episode. I don't know if it's available anywhere online. If it is, I'll put a link in the show notes of this episode though, for sure. Um, so yeah, so that's my review of Science Fiction Theater's One Hundred Years Young, and that's my episode of Anthology. This is episode three of season three, so next up I'm going to be reviewing The Passers-By from uh, season three of The Twilight Zone, episode four, and my bonus review is going to be for The Strange Dr. Lawrence, which is Science Fiction Theater season one, episode 14, and uh, yeah, I'm really excited to be back at this. So once again, um, check out... 
my other podcasts, uh, Obsessive Viewer and uh, Tower Junkies. And yeah, that'll do it for me on this episode of Anthology. Um, thank you guys so much for listening and for supporting me. And check out Patreon also. And uh, thank you guys so much for listening. And I'll see you next time. And now, here's a short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. To hear the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. So anyway, we watched Raya and the Last Dragon. Um, it was okay. I, honestly, it's fine that we didn't record because I don't know that I would have had a lot to say about it. Um, it's very pretty. It's very beautiful. Like The animation's great. The um, the vo- voice acting is is terrific. Um, the story though just did nothing for me. It just felt really. Anthology is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to AnthologyPod.com/archive. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com/AnthologyPod. And follow the show on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at AnthologyPod.com donate, or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. Official Anthology merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more can be found in the Obsessive Viewer's Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at anthologypod.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at tpublic.com. For information about the Obsessive Viewer's annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter, at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and co-host Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, over at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at TheSecularPerspective.com. Bumper music for this podcast comes courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. You can also find As Good As It Gets music on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Kitty! Yeah!